You're listening to a reading of the book Disrupting Mercy by Matthew C. Clarke and Annabella Rossini Clarke. The book was published in 2022 and this reading is being distributed as a series of podcasts narrated by the author Matthew Clarke. Footnotes and bracketed references to verses in the Bible have mostly been omitted to make the reading flow more conversational. I assume if you want to study the fine details, you'll read either the printed or the e-book versions, which are available from many online booksellers, including Amazon. Biblical quotes are nearly all taken from the New Revised Standard Version. Chapter 12 Zacchaeus, Mercy and Evangelism An initial thought to ponder. British author Charles Williams, born 1886, died 1945, often repeated the phrase, under the mercy. His friend C.S. Lewis frequently signed off letters with the same phrase. It was an expression of faith that all things happen within the will of God. How would your life be different if it were fully lived under the mercy? Evangelism has developed a bad reputation in many circles. It has come to mean preaching a particular tribal concept of vicarious holiness through which we can be saved from our sin in order to get an entrance ticket to heaven. The word is more associated with paternalistic arrogance, judgmental dogmatism and guilt-laden proselytism than with the justice, mercy and humility of Jesus. The source of the word, however, is the Greek euangelion, which literally means good news. As a verb, the word means to announce or to bear witness to the good news. My use of evangelism here is an attempt to tie together the key themes of the book to emphasise how mercy epitomises God's good news to all humanity. I started this book by noting the world's profound need for mercy. As one component of the ecology of love, we have seen what mercy looks like in the Old and the New Testaments, and pursued the idea that, in essence, mercy is a gift of extreme kindness, motivated by compassion. As a result, we have seen the deep intentionality of mercy, as it demonstrates three levels of God's love for the world. Mercy addresses the immediate needs of people, whether those needs are for physical healing, forgiveness of sins, liberation from bondage, or finding a way home from exile. Second, mercy also offers each of us disruptive opportunities for personal transformation or redemption, just as it did when Jesus called Zacchaeus down from the sycamore tree. Third, mercy is God's attempt to remove enmity between people, between people and God, and between people in the created world, so that with true and full shalom, all things in heaven and on earth may be reconciled in Christ. Mercy does not let people off the hook, as though our brokenness can be ignored, nor is mercy contrary to justice. Mercy is not an act of power wielded by a superior to rescue an inferior. Mercy is the disruption that reorients us towards shalom, and the driving force that makes the good news good news. God's mercy is infinite in scope and extent, a gift to all, without condition, and without regard to whether the recipient deserves it or not. Mercy is offered not just once, but seventy times seven billion times. 
Followers of Jesus are called to both receive and show mercy as part of the package deal that Micah called good and Jesus called abundant life. Jesus invites us into a network of reciprocity in which this giving and receiving of mercy nourishes everyone. Both receiving and showing mercy can be hard and often fall short of its ideal, but growing in mercy is a central part of discipleship under the tutelage of the Holy Spirit. As with every element of discipleship, mercy is not an exception, but a habit. We develop the ability to show extravagant mercy through frequent smaller acts that build that habit. Although mercy is always an act rather than a feeling, it launches from a posture like the heart of God. That posture is outrageously generous, self-sacrificial and surprising to the point of being scandalous. We model our attitudes and behaviour on those of Jesus, and in doing so we imitate the character of God. We become merciful because our model is merciful. Mercy is both part of the good news and the primary means by which that good news is experienced. Mercy repositions our frame of reference from an economy of exchange to an ecology of love, from relational transactions to a network of reciprocity, from conditionality to gift. Mercy is evangelistic in that it proclaims and demonstrates the good news that God acts toward us with extreme kindness, motivated by compassion. Mercy is evangelistic in its desire to heal, to disrupt, to transform, to redeem, and to reconcile. Mercy is evangelistic in that it invites people into the web of mercy that is the kingdom of God. Subheading Proactive Mercy The shape of mercy inevitably depends on the interpersonal context of the need being addressed. Mercy does not follow a rule, but flows from a desire to care for the other, from a posture of grace, and from lifelong habits of generosity and kindness. Mercy is shown when someone sacrifices a kidney to save the life of another. Mercy is equally shown in palliative care units when morphine is given to ease distress in the clear knowledge that it will also shorten the person's life. Mercy is shown by a marriage partner who lets go of personal opportunities in order to best serve their partner and the health of their relationship. Mercy is also shown in letting someone you love go when it becomes clear that your presence cannot enable their flourishing. Mercy is not passive, nor does it amount to sweeping evil under the rug. Mercy seeks to change people, to save them from whatever sin, bondage or exile they suffer under, and to give them a new chance to flourish. It is a form of active, non-violent resistance to evil, rather than either running away from evil or overcoming evil with evil. Pope Francis conceives of God's mercy as a response, a response that is only possible when the person first moves toward God with an acknowledgement of their sin. Such an attitude is well attested in the Bible, with verses like Isaiah 55.7 declaring, quote, Let them return to the Lord, that he may have mercy on them, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. End of quote. There are times, however, when mercy operates proactively, that is, prior to the person in need doing anything. Peter Rollins tells a parable of two brothers whose faith and whose life experiences took very different directions. One, taking his faith very seriously, dedicated his life to serving those in need. He gave up comfort and romance for the sake of that work. 
The other married the woman he loved, had children, and lived in a beautiful home. He rarely thought about God and paid little attention to those who suffered around him. When the brothers died, God embraced them both and gave them an equal share in heaven. The first brother smiled deeply at the other and said, Today my joy is finally complete, for we are together again. In response, the materially prosperous brother said nothing, but began to weep over the wasted life that he had led. By way of commentary, Rollins notes that the gift of God and his brother's joy is precisely what brought the man to a place where he was finally worthy of the gift. Rather than mercy being expressed in response to any movement toward God or toward remorse, mercy was expressed proactively. Only after receiving mercy did the man change. Quote, the gift thus retroactively creates the conditions for its justification. End of quote. This is an example of the disruption of mercy. Mercy can stop people in their tracks because of its unexpectedness and its generosity, and in that moment of disruption, new opportunities are created for transformation and redemption. Do not mistakenly conclude that mercy is goal-driven. Although mercy is infused with hope, its expression does not depend on any future response. We are merciful because we follow Jesus, because Jesus is the embodiment of God, and because God desires mercy rather than sacrifice. The great love of God, indeed the infinite love of God, for the entire creation, including all people, creatures, and inanimate objects, results in an equally great compassion in response to creation's need. That compassion propels the gift of God's outrageous mercy, a mercy without conditions, without debt, and without regard to whether any deserve it or not a mercy that seeks to ameliorate our immediate needs, to disrupt our transactional thinking so we can reimagine a way of living through which all can flourish, and ultimately to lead creation forward until all things in heaven and on earth are reconciled in Christ. Subheading, Joining the Guild of Knot Tires Nick Cave once commented that, quote, Despite our collective state of loss and our potential for evil, there exists a great network of goodness knitted together by countless everyday human kindnesses. End of quote. Millions of everyday acts of kindness form the substrate of society, without which we are a mob rather than a society. Mercy, it seems to me, is something more surprising. Mercy is extreme kindness, scandalously enacted beyond what anyone would expect, without regard to whether it is deserved. Mercy is when the kindness comes at great personal cost, or when it is shown to someone whom everyone else has given up on, or expressed in such generous creativity that it disrupts the normal trajectory. If kindness knits the social fabric, mercy ties knots when threads of that fabric break. Will you join the Guild of Knot Tires? Hear the good news from the stories of Chloe, Dirk Willems, Jean Valjean, Maximilian Colby, and others in this book. Hear the good news from Jesus, whose mercy was shown in forsaking power and status to live in exile with us, and in the surprising and extravagant kindness of giving his life for us. Remember Zacchaeus, who, though despised by his community, received mercy from Jesus in a way that redirected the whole trajectory of his life. We all need that mercy, 
and we can all find it in Jesus. May we also find it through the network of reciprocity that encompasses the whole world. Given the centrality of mercy to the gospel, let us seek ways to be transformed by mercy ourselves and to take the same posture as Jesus, allowing the divine well of love to overflow through mercy to all we meet. In his letter to the church at Ephesus, Paul wrote, quote, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. Therefore be imitators of God, as beloved children, and live in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Paul invites all followers of Jesus to live in love, a phrase that encompasses both knowing we are loved and showing love to others. According to that verse, love is expressed in kindness, compassion, it's tender-hearted, which means the visceral good feeling in your guts, and forgiveness, showing each other favour and grace. To the extent that we take Paul's advice, we join that great crowd of witnesses who, as imitators of Jesus, revel in the joy of acting mercifully. Will you continue your journey toward loving mercy? Will you cultivate compassion and express that compassion through mercy to your friends, family and neighbours, whatever their needs might be? Will you extend that mercy to people who are marginalised in our society, to those of other tribes and to your enemies? That's absurd, isn't it? Scandalous. But isn't it what Jesus asks of his followers? Will you participate in God's mission to reconcile all things in heaven and on earth by showing mercy to all? May we all experience the mercy of God and become bearers of that wild and wondrous good news to all we meet. May we be freed from bondage, forgiven for our sin, and find a way out of exile to our true home. May we all flourish in the network of God's disruptive gift of extreme kindness, and may we be so impelled by compassion for the people around us that we surprise them with the same extravagance. Subheading. Something to consider. Given that we live under the mercy of God, what is your wish for how mercy transforms you? What's next in your journey towards loving mercy? Well, that brings us almost to the end of this podcast series. Thank you for your attentiveness and for listening to all the uh, 12 chapters of the book. There's uh, some more material in the printed copy of the book and the Kindle version, which is in an extensive appendix, which takes up 55 pages, which isn't directly telling the story of our approach to mercy, but looking at other people's approach to mercy. And so you see in there a description of uh, common stereotypes of mercy, how that works on the battlefield and in the courtroom, some comments on several dictionary definitions of mercy, about mercy in the philosophy of ancient Rome and in the thinking of Augustine, Anselm and Aquinas. I look at the views of Nietzsche, some Islamic views and Jewish views, some ideas about mercy from Australian indigenous culture, and then a discussion about my thoughts of the concept of mercy in Roman Catholic theology, and finally a commentary on the concept of mercy in Reform theology. But now at the end of the series, I thought it might be useful to bring in the voice of Bella, who, as I said at the beginning in the preface, was the silent voice behind the writing of this book. So, good evening, Bella. Good evening, Matthew. <laughs> 
Um, I wondered if you wanted to talk about the, some of the process of us writing the book and the main things that you've learned over the last couple of years in, the, in that process. That's an interesting question because it's been suggested to me over the years that um, some of my stories and the amazing things that have happened in my adventures, that one day I should write a book. And I've never been comfortable with that idea. And now I'm definitely not comfortable with that idea <laughs> in terms of what it takes. And I guess that's one of the things that I've learned as I have journeyed alongside Matt over the last couple of years writing this book. The amount of uh, thinking and thinking and rethinking um, that goes into a book let alone the editing process and the publishing process and that has gone along with it. It doesn't surprise me that it's involved, but I certainly know without a doubt the complexities and the things that go on to write a book. Now, you you were the first person to think about the importance of the Zacchaeus story. And uh, in, for a while, we were going to call the book the Zacchaeus Strategy, but uh, we went off that after a while. But uh, how important has that been in your thinking about Mercy? Absolutely fundamental to my thinking of mercy. If I had to capture the idea of how an act of mercy moving towards somebody could change the life of that person and those people around, then there's no better story that I know than the Zacchaeus story. And part of me still wishes we called it that. <laughs> Maybe that will be the next book, which we will talk about later. <laughs> Another thing that I have learnt walking alongside this uh, this book writing, particularly as um, my position as the muse or the, the silent voice that's not actually so silent, particularly <laughs> at two in the morning when my, my brain wakes up even more and I have these amazing ideas and I, I shake Matt and go, Matt, Matt, I've got an idea about the Mercy book. Mm, yeah. Can I tell you about it now? Oh, I'd rather you didn't. But Again, I do. So I wake him up and I tell him about this amazing thought that I've just had. And he says, oh, no, Bella, that is such a good thought. But that means I've got to rewrite the last three chapters of the book. So maybe the question really is, Matt, how did you go having somebody else help write this book alongside you? Well, yeah, I, I do uh, like a lot of your epiphanies, but I, I wish that you would epiph at a more reasonable hour of the day. There is just so many things that have happened because of our discussions together and our life together. So I've mentioned in the preface that this really is a collaborative work, even though I actually wrote the words on the pages. The idea of seeing the Zacchaeus story as the prototype of, of mercy was, was really valuable. And uh, you pushed me to think more about how that relates to our work in human trafficking as well, to see the two as not disconnected parts of our lives, but that what we say about mercy needs to apply in the trickiest of situations, even in the horrendous evil of human trafficking that uh, we're doing research in. Hmm. Another interesting thing that I think that I have brought to the table or to the desk is my use of or my need to use images uh, and pictures to help me understand complex issues or concepts. And one of the ones that I think was just a brilliant picture was the whole idea of a woven piece of fabric when we had to talk about mercy. If you could just put mercy into some images, that was the one where you have a beautiful woven piece of fabric and some people would throw it away because the thread had been damaged, it had been broken, and over time, unless that thread was a knot tied in it 
and it was secured and mended, the whole fabric would be compromised. So I love that image of mercy that we need to be not tires. And I think my need of pictures to understand, and then Matt's been able to write those into the book, I think has been really helpful, not only for me, but I'm sure it will be for you, the readers as well. And I wonder if any of the readers noticed the subtle allusion to that on the back page of the book, where we included some uh, fabric knotting. Okay, so you mentioned the idea of a second book. What would you like to see happen in that book, Bella? Not only do I like pictures and images to help describe things, I love real stories. So for Matt, the theologian, the man who likes to to write in a scholarly fashion, it has been very helpful. But for me, what is really helpful and encouraging are the real-life stories of people. And in one book, you can't necessarily have everything. So there was this sort of little idea of maybe there could be a second book. Mercy around the meal table, mercy in conversation. So if you've got any stories where you have experienced mercy yourself, you've participated in the beautiful meal of mercy by giving mercy, or you've actually just observed mercy around you in different ways. I would so love to hear your stories. So the idea is a sort of a practical field guide to mercy rather than an abstract conceptualization of it. Yeah, a practitioner's guide. That's probably Mm. a good word to use. So it may be not just stories, but maybe when we've worked at some of this mercy theory out and we too have talked to more people, we'll be able to give some more practical information of, well, what could this mercy, this this gift of extravagance really look like out there in the real world? Yeah, and that's a that's a deeply collaborative work. We'd need to write that with the input from many, many people. So as Bella said, if you've got some stories and you'd like to encourage others with your story of mercy, then uh, let us know and we'll maybe weave pen it. something, weave it into book number two. That leads us a bit to um, what Bella and I are up to now during this year, which is 2023, which um, I don't know when you're listening to this, but we've been traveling a fair bit and trying to promote storytelling about mercy. We love getting together with people around a table or church youth groups or a sermon in church. So if you would like to hear more about what we're doing, you could certainly uh, invite us to your place and we'd love to come. So you can find out more about Bella and I at our website, turningteardropsintojoy.com. You can send us your experiences of mercy through email, if you like, at turningteardropsintojoy at gmail.com. Join our Facebook group. Just look for Disrupting Mercy in Facebook. And please, organize an event and invite us along to it. Or just start a discussion yourself with your friends, your family, youth group, whatever. We think it's really important that this idea of mercy and it's the disruption and the transformative opportunities it can bring is thoroughly discussed, that more and more people bring that up as a topic that can gradually make our society kinder and more nourishing to each other. So thank you for joining us in the venture so far, and we hope that you'll continue in your own journey of mercy and through discussion with others and hopefully with contact with us as well. So thanks for listening for these podcasts. We're going to end with a blessing on you all that Bella will read. Hmm. So thank you, yes, for sharing at our table. And we often like to finish a mealtime where we discuss how we have been blessed. And I would like to now bless you. May we all experience the mercy of God and become bearers 
of that wild and wondrous good news to all we meet. May we be freed from bondage, forgiven from our sin, and find the way out of exile to our true home. May we all flourish in the network of God's disruptive gift of extreme kindness. And may we be so impelled by compassion for the people around us that we surprise them with the same extravagance. This chapter of Disrupting Mercy has been narrated by Matthew C. Clarke. Other chapters are also available from the usual podcast distributors. You can also find them along with more details about the authors at turningteardropsintojoy.com. If you'd like to join a discussion about the book and share your own experiences of mercy, search for the Disrupting Mercy group on Facebook.